This is the Zen's podcast on science, technology, and entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Zen Rang Yap, and it's my pleasure to introduce my guest today, Bram Tan. He is an artist with an industrial design background. He enjoys thinking broadly about the world and how everything technological works. He also believes that artistic pursuits is an affirmation to oneself that the future will be positive and good. Bram also embodies someone who just loves learning and always appreciates new perspectives and looking at solving problems. I've had many late night discussions with him on a very broad range of topics on psychology, brand unified theories, design and purpose. <laughs> he always brightens up the room everywhere he goes and I'm certainly very happy he's here today. Welcome to the podcast, Bram. Thank you. Thank you. Happy to be here. It's very good to see wow, you. Wow, what an intro. <laughs> yeah, yeah has, has the summer hit Paris yet? Yes, it has. I, I have the... I'm lucky that I can go for a walk every day. I take the same route around a lake that I live uh, nearby. And yeah, I think going outside every day to the same place gives me a sort of perspective on the seasons changing, the leaves coming out. You know, the, I like watching the ducks have their babies or ducklings. <laughs> And, you know, I, I've been doing this for two years, walking around the lake every day because of the pandemic. I mean, we weren't allowed out during the pandemic, so I missed it. And I decided that I wasn't going to waste a single day not going for a walk ever again. Yeah. So, yeah. And uh, yeah, so it's sunny and people are out. Nobody's wearing masks anymore. And uh, I, yeah, I like it. I, I see the same people walking their dogs. I say hi. Etc. Yeah. Oh, it's not, it's not really it has nice. hit. Yeah. It has hit. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's, it's here as well. So everyone's been uh, starting to enjoy sitting outside. But uh, yeah, I think it's, yeah. Uh, it's good that you go, on a, you go on a walk every day. It helps you it's almost like de stress, but also get your, get your mind thinking in the background about anything you're working on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like, I, I, I have this idea. Well, it's not my idea. It's obviously I, I learned it from the internet on a podcast that your mind can have like a sort of inward looking kind of state where it's like you're looking through a tube and you're focusing on one little thing and you can have another opposite state where it's like panoramic and but a surprising thing that I discovered was that this is it's voluntary uh, what state your mind in whether it's focused or relaxed and panoramic is actually up to you so if you put yourself in a position where you're staring at a tiny screen of your phone, then your mind will follow and you'll be in a very focused, well, what, what would be called a soda, soda straw uh, view of life. And if you go outside and you put yourself far away from things and you have a panoramic view, then your, your, your mind follows. And I think I've, I've discovered that's absolutely true. So I have to go outside to relax. I, I can't relax inside because everything's nearby and I'm, I'm having to focus on what's next and what emails and, you know, like what I'm going to have for lunch and, you know, all, all the little things in life. And I don't want to do that all the time. Mm. Yeah, it keeps you sane. Right. So yeah. uh, what have you been working on at the moment? Tell us about your design work and work on Yukioe. Okay. Yeah. So I, I'm a, I have an industrial design background. I've been a freelance uh, designer for uh, almost a decade now in France. But I've always had this sort of nagging feeling that I wanted to do more. I wanted to do, I wanted to make art. It's uh, not something that I've done yet. Well, it's not something that I've 
done all my life because frankly it's quite scary just to do art but five years ago I decided to to make art so I do both now I I still design and I, I'm also an artist but what is important for me is to try and blend the two together and in 2014 I just found myself at the Grand Palais in Paris at the Hokusai exhibition and you know, I, I, I love Japanese culture in general. I think they're crazy people and they're amazing and skilled and creative. And they have so much history of, you know, the samurais and etc. But Hokusai is a very well-known painter from the Edo period. He was a artist, uh, a commercial artist. He made illustrations for magazines, comics. I, I feel that I might be kind of drifting off. But I'll come back to the question. I was really inspired by his work, this exhibition at the Grand Palais, the Hokusai exhibition, the great way all his pictures of animals and people and daily life of Japan in the Edo period. But then I thought, you know, I'd love to try this. And this is, this is the same thing with Asian culture viewed by the West, you know. It's viewed by the West with a lot of curiosity and wonder and, you know, sort of mystical qualities of the religions and the culture. And then there's the food. So, you know, I'm kind of, I kind of grew up in the West. So I have a lot of Western sensibilities. And I also was very curious about my own sort of, you know, I'm Malaysian, but, you know, sort of Southeast Asia, Asian culture. And I thought, wow, these guys, 300 years ago, they're making these mass producing high quality without much technology to be, I mean, it's woodblock printing. But the, the product was amazing. I mean, they were able to produce, let's say, a run of a thousand prints, all pretty much the same. So it was mass production in a very early time. And that, as a designer, that really wowed me. And seeing it in the flesh at this exhibition just kind of cemented this idea inside that I need to, I need to get into this. I need to try and do this. I mean, this is something that I've always been like from a kid is, you know, like when you're a kid, you don't have any money, but you see all these things, all these stunts and sports on TV, and then you want to do it, and then you just have a little garden, and you kind of, you know, you have nothing. So you get your roller skates out, and you pull the straps off, and then you, like, you glue it to a, you know, a piece of wood, and then you've got a skateboard, and then you see somebody um, windsurfing, and then you sort of, like, attach some weights, wing to it or something, and then you've got a windsurfer in your yeah. garden. Yeah, it's like that, that kind of approach. So I thought, okay, how can I do woodblock printing at home DIY without spending 10 years learning to carve bits of, you know, cherry wood or, or whatever hardwood, super hard concrete wood that they use. And then I kind of, kind of, I think that, that, that urge kind of waned a little bit because it seemed impossible, you know, like I'd have to go out and buy all the tools. I'd have to be really Zen-like and learn how to do it. And, you know, sometimes my, um, Attention span wasn't perhaps not great enough for that kind of endeavor and it waned. In parallel, what was happening in my life was as an industrial designer, since university, I have worked in industrial design and 3D printing, but not maybe not by that name, it was rapid prototyping has been, had been something in my life since day one. You know, rapid prototyping is a process whereby you can produce a model, a working model of a future product. 
to see how it works, to test, to iterate on, to experiment on. So this is a service usually provided by a specialist to design companies. And as a designer, I'm quite familiar with rapid prototyping and I've seen its evolution. And then suddenly in the sort of 2005, 2006 kind of time, it kind of just went off in a different direction. I think what triggered it was this new direction, I mean, was that some patent that protected the technology behind rapid prototyping ran out because patents usually last about 25 years. And this patent ran out and suddenly everybody or anybody could use the technology to create 3D printing. And it, plus the internet, plus websites such as Hackaday or you know those websites that teach you how to do things at home. Rapid prototyping became 3D printing, became desktop 3D, desktop 3D printing, became 3D printing for everybody. And then suddenly I had the capability of building my own 3D printer. And that was a real turning point for what I'm doing now because I built a 3D printer, I got into 3D printing, I started 3D printing whatever I could think of. I think it's one of the things that I've shown you in the past is this SR-71 Blackbird model, right? I mean, we, if you want, you can ask me about that later. And so I thought, look, I love 3D printing. I love design. And I, I, I really kind of really interested in this ukiyo-e, Japanese woodblock printing. I'm sure there's a way I can solve this problem by putting them together, right? So in a roundabout way, I kind of cheated the system. I didn't learn to carve wood blocks by hand. I used my computer, I used my 3D printer to print wood blocks instead of carving them by hand. Sorry, very sorry, not sorry. So yeah, and that's how I got into it. And, and, and the rest is history, I've been, developing the technique. I've been trying to spread the technique. I've been trying to find new artistic styles that the technique can be used for. And I have workshops. Well, I, I, I cooperate, I, I team up with other people to run workshops in France so that lots of other people can try this as well. I have a website disseminating information about it. And um, I also offer uh, kits that people can use to do it at home. So who knows where it will lead. I, I love the, the work you're doing on UQOV. I first saw it in 2018, I think. And, okay, and you uh, tried it. Yeah, and when, when I tried yeah. it, it was, I just felt like suddenly everyone could create art in, in a way. Yeah. It was like you're, you were, it was like you're opening up this whole world of creation and making it a lot faster and simpler people do you think that's why it resonates with people as well being able to create something beautiful so quickly yeah yeah in a word yes <laughs> uh, the short answer is yes the long answer is that as i said you know there's been a long-standing curiosity about sort of you know other people's cultures and woodblock printing is one of those things that people appre people have appreciated the art and the product of woodblock printing for hundreds of years in fact 
I'm not sure if this is absolutely true, but one of the myths is that woodblock prints were so numerous in Japan when they were circulating that it triggered a sort of every man's art collection craze, right? It was cheap enough for everybody to collect art and have a collection. It's like, like maybe people who collect comics, you know, something like that. It was accessible and it was numerous and it was, you know, ongoing. And then it was so numerous, it was so, so everyday that some of these pieces of uh, paper, pages of a manga comic or a magazine, were used to wrap things that were to, to be posted to the West, to friends or for maybe for commercial uh, reasons. The wrapping, and again, I'm not sure if this is 100% true, but it's, it's a great story. The wrapping went to the West by accident. And people unwrapped these things and then looked at the wrapper and went, oh my God, you know, this is, this is just Japanese newspaper. But to me, it's this, this amazing exotic artifact of a distant land, right? This ukiyo-e print. And, and people like Van Gogh and Henri Riviere, you know, French artists, Dutch artists, well, Western artists, you know, got wind of all of this and maybe through travels as well, of course and started to copy their styles and even started to copy the process. So like, for example, Henri Riviere did the 36 views of the Eiffel Tower, totally ripping off Hokusai's 36 views of um, Mount Fuji, right? But, you know, he did it so well. I mean, in his own right, pulled it off. And in fact, I have reproduced some of his plates as well as Hokusai's plates because I, I see them as, you know, just as good, just as just as just as special in their appreciation of this of this process, this printing process, this hand printing process. And just a, a quick word on what you said earlier about disseminating art and also spreading the ability for other people. That is one of my missions. I, I try and make it as clear as possible on my website, but I'm not a great sort of articulator of ideas in writing, you know, in a formal sense, which is why I kind of like talking on, on this podcast because I like talking about stuff, but I'm not quite as good at writing it out clearly. You know, like art is really important to me because it's like almost like therapy. It puts me in a place which where I'm happy. It puts my mind in a place where it's creative and optimistic and positive. And it also encapsulates an opportunity to master something. Miyamoto Musashi, the samurai, said, you know, to learn a thousand things, learn one thing well, do one thing well. And I believe that. And I, I love the fact that in our workshops, kids come, their parents come. You know, their parents are sometimes curious, so they, they may not have a plan to join the workshop, but they kind of see all these 3D printed plates and they go, Okay, okay, I'll sit down, you know, and I put an, we put out another place for them. And then at the end of the workshop, they're, they're just like, you know, they're just surprised. This is, this is the, the constant, a very common reaction that I get in the workshops is adults come up to me and they say two things. They say, my kid really had fun. Like, I've not seen my kid sit still and do something for like an hour, right? Which, job done. And then they say that I'm, I, you know, that like they are surprised at how, how nice it was, how relaxing and, and how um, interesting it was 
And uh, again, job done. I, I, I love hearing things like that. And that's why I like doing the workshops and I like spreading this. And I, and I can only hope that it does for other people what it does for me. Okay, so yeah, just a sort of final note about the workshops is that and I, 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 what, I, what I'm trying to get across when we publicize the workshops is that, but we are trying to offer, it's not, it's not like a straight up art workshop. It's not like come to this workshop and do art. At the same time, it's not a, a session where uh, we give you a, a load of uh, equipment and then it's not like a session where we give you pieces of puzzle and then you just put it together and then you're done and you go home, right? It's not a problem solving exercise and it's not an artistic exercise. I think what, 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 what I'm trying to do with the workshops is I'm trying to create a, a situation where it's both and it's fun. You are creating art, but because you're creating art by printing using the plates that I've produced, right? And then the plates come from, come from our reproductions of great artists like Hokusai and Henri Rivière. And maybe one day I hope to introduce plates of my own making, my own art, right? It's the, the, the person doing the workshop with the kid or the adult, it, you know, they're collaborating in through space and time. I, I like putting it like that. And they're reaching back to Hokusai and saying, look, you did this, you, you made this picture, you made this amazing picture of the great wave of Kanagawa. And now I'm going to collaborate with you with these plates. And I'm going to choose my own colors, which is not as easy as it sounds, right? That's where the fun and the challenge is. And I'm going to create the great wave of Kanagawa by Hokusai stroke, you know, me or Bram or whatever the kid's name is, right? And, and you see that happening in real time in these workshops and it's so satisfying. And then everybody takes a photo you know, of their picture at the end. And they're, they're clearly really, really pleased, you know, because they've done something, it turned out really well. And, and, and that's, that's, that's when I think, yeah, okay, I'm going to keep doing this. I'm going to keep making this available to people and I'm going to see where it goes. So that's just wanted to add that. I just love that you said that. Yeah, <laughs> you're almost you're connecting them through space and time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, mean, I mean, like, I'm, I'm a nerd. I'm, I'm, you know, I, I love science, right? I, I've not left that behind. You know, yeah. I still love using words like space and time. Believe yeah. me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is where watching Rick and Morty pays off. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. There's a, a like, like, like mainstream culture has started to take like I think hard science you know, take it on. Do you know what I mean? It's not like uh, Meet the Jetsons where it's like their spaceship is ridiculous. Their, you know, their, their inventions are ridiculous. Uh, or, or like, I don't know. It, I think what's happened in, in the present with mainstream culture, with cartoons, with films, with like Interstellar and all that, you know, those things, they're really beginning to take hard science and run with that ball and go, okay, we're going to be accurate. We're going to be not ridiculous, but we're going to also be entertaining and we're going to wow the audience with like quite real science. I wouldn't say real science, but more real than, than Thunderbirds, for example, where, you know, like anything's possible. Like, yeah, you want just let's go, you know. I mean, this is, I'm talking about Thunderbirds and Jetsons because it's like, it's my time, you know. Yeah. 
sorry, I don't know where that came from, but I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad you put that up. Um, I mean, I have no idea what Jetsons and Thunderbirds are. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, Jetsons, Jetsons is super old. Yeah. Jetsons is probably my my dad's time, but but like Thun- Thunderbirds was the science fiction show. Yeah. You know, the six million dollar man. You know, all these kind of science science technology based entertainment of my time as a kid in the 70s and 80s so i i can only refer to those do do you think those uh, those tv shows and movies inspired you um to be a designer Uh, to make things and have a vision when you do things you know yeah the cool thing to say would be yes (laughs) and you know like cartoons inspired me and all that yeah i mean the cool thing to say would be yes and yes of course they did but in reality if what inspired me to get into science technology to be interested and in, and in, in all of this to be a designer is is actually just being bored when i was a kid i remember just being really bored and the most interesting thing that i could do was take things apart yeah so there'd be an alarm clock i'd take it apart you know, my telephone, the telephone, you know, back then it was like wired to the table. I take that apart. I look at the mic, unravel the mic, the, you know, the little copper wires of the mic. So basically destroy things. And <laughs> it must have been really through, annoying for your parents. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It was to them, to them, it was like, if I could put it back, it was jackpot. It's like, that was a win. But the default was, it's destroyed. You know, I remember that my, my lowest point in my childhood exploration of electronic devices was when my dad bought me a, a soldering gun. I don't know why. Okay. Bought me a soldering gun, but it was a gun type, right? And it was like shaped like a pistol and it had a trigger. And when you push the trigger, the light came on. So it's like a little torch to show you what you're working on. Quite clever. What I didn't realize was that it, it, it was already hot when you switched it on, but when you pulled the trigger, it was gave it a, a surge of power. But I thought you just had to hold the trigger on all the time. So I was just like, I was basically like melting uh, circuits to pieces, holding the trigger until the gun melted in my hands. Oh my God. Yeah, I was, I was, so, I was so into what I was doing that the gun melted in my hands. The, the handle actually took the shape of my hand, which, you know, which is what kind of like maybe inspires industrial designers, designers now, you know, like they get a bit of plasticine, yeah. they squash it in their hand and hey, look, they've got like a <laughs> pole handle or they've got a toothbrush handle or something. It's, did, it, did it burn um, your hand as well? Yeah, 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 burn my hand. But, you know, you know, when you're a kid, honestly, when you're a kid and you're into something, your, your hand can be on fire but you're, you're, you're just still kind of soldering things. You're still like, I'm doing this. I'm doing this. Like my hand is hot. Yeah, of course it's hot. You know, this is science, right? I'm doing science. My hand's mm. burning. Okay. Yeah. So that's a low point. But yeah. So just, just to answer the question, short, the short version is, yes, TV, of course, makes science and technology, shows you all the possibilities of the future, rockets, laser guns, lightsabers all that really yeah spurs you on but no i think at the end of the day what what spurred me on was just wondering constantly how everything works you know how the bicycle works how tvs work everything Mm. 
and and I and 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 that doesn't really happen so much anymore. I think because you 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 take a uh, you take an iPhone apart, right? There are no you know there's nothing really to see, unless you have already have a, a unless you already have a foundation of knowledge about IC circuits and power 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 supplies, and you know blah 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 speakers. But everything's modular inside, and everything's too small now. Whereas yeah. before a resistor was like you know. A capacitor was like this, this yeah, big. You can see it, right? As big yeah. as your thumb. Yeah, you can see it. In fact, what one thing we used to do was get the biggest capacitors out of electronic gadgets. Okay, charge them up. Okay. Okay. And then and then throw them at other people. Wow. <laughs> and if you and if you did it right, if you did it right, it would make contact and Shut discharge. Them. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah, evil. How old evil. were you guys when you did this? <laughs> Just uh, like two weeks ago, right? <laughs> <laughs> you mean how old did I start? <laughs> <laughs> Never stopped. Yeah. Let, let, let's just say I started at at, at nine. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Wow. Yeah, because it reminds me of what Richard Feynman used to do. He used to take apart uh, radios, uh, and TVs, and he used to yeah. fix things quite a lot. And that was at the time when. You could still fix things, right? And I suppose when you're young as well, you could you could still take things apart and you can understand what it is because all the components were still quite big, right? And, but now it's all yeah. been consolidated into one device. Right? Yeah, exactly, so, exactly. So. Like you, you, yeah. What what are you gonna do? I mean, uh, mm. I can't. I'm looking around this room right now, okay. Um, and the only thing I can really sort of say, oh, I'm gonna open that up and I'm gonna I'm gonna visually learn how it works is the vacuum cleaner. Yeah, actually, that's still the three D printer. Yeah, yeah, the three D printer. It's a. I've got an Ultimaker, and you, you. When in fact, uh, my friend bought this Ultimaker for me. He bought two Ultimakers, gave one to me, and it. I didn't realize, but you have to make your own Ultimaker, which is like such an amazing concept. You know, to sell a product where you the person receives, unpacks. And then has to start scratching their head for you know a week. But at the end of the day, at the end of that process, you have an ultimate. You have the knowledge of how to fix it, and the knowledge of how to improve it. So if if you want, and you have fed yourself, you know you have fed yourself information and skills and yeah. I mean, I wish I wish there were more products like that. I wish you could buy a box. And build your own phone, for example, you know, or buy a box and build your own electric car would be nice. What do you think of what do you think of Apple's design language? Since wow. we're on the subject a, of like is... electronics and design, <laughs> <laughs> I'm I, okay. Just want to define industrial design because when I was uh, choosing my uh, what degree to do when I was doing my A levels. I came across this term industrial design, and like many people, I interpreted or I translated it quite literally, right? Designing industries, right? And which was then I found out very very quickly that no, it's not a course where you learn to design industries because that that is sort of reserved for maybe the the sort of Elon Musk's of this world, you know. 
they design entire industries. <laughs> Industrial design, as far as I understand it now, is the the design of essentially the outward appearance of an object, or the sort of not not to say superficial in the negative term, but like superficial, superficial as in the the shell, the skin, and the you know not so much the workings of that product. You know, you are clothing the mechanisms and electronics of a product to enhance the use and the appeal and the, to stoke desire of that product in the customer. So I realized that ironically, I spent my whole childhood taking things apart to look what's inside, but I was now entering an industry which was to do with how the thing looks from the outside, you know, mostly. And when I got to the, started the course, it was all about curves and finishes and ergonomics, which is cool, right? Because that's how a product works and how it interacts with the human body. But I was kind of a bit disappointed because I think I should have just stuck to my first choice, which was mechanical engineering and just stuck with it and, you know, instead of switching to industrial design. So when you ask about Apple's design language, I think, are you asking me about what do I think about Apple's aesthetics? Or are you asking me about Apple's design philosophy in terms of their whole philosophy of making products? I think more, <clears throat> more on the philosophy. More on the philosophy. Yeah. Okay. Sorry, I kind of went off on a tangent there because I wanted to make the, I wanted to define industrial design mm. and and sort of highlight that I got it wrong, and I'm sure a lot of other people get yeah. it wrong. You know, <laughs> when I say I'm an industrial designer, it probably means something different to uh, other people. I've never, you know, like back in the day with the whole Macintosh thing and. Okay, so can I just go back to my school again, school days? So the yeah. first time I saw an Apple Apple product was the Macintosh. Okay, and they were there were three Macintosh computers that were portable that students could sign out and take back to their boarding house to do uh, assignments, and it came with a black backpack. And I say like portable, I mean, we're talking 19, early 1990s, right? When I was um, in sixth form, they didn't just give it to any little, any student, you had to be a sixth former. And I remember you could sign these things out and they would give you a giant, a giant backpack where you could carry a, basically carry a desktop computer back to your house, set it up and then do, you know, do your work mobile, you know, sort of at a distance. And that was the first uh, time I'd met a Macintosh. And I was really impressed because prior to that, it was just kind of like um, Apple, you know, not, not Apple, sorry, IBM, IBM PCs. And the interface, you know, had the little face and it had the sort of more than one color going on, maybe three colors or whatever it was. And so that was like a lot of millions of people around the world. I sort of started on that trajectory of like liking Apple. Yeah. Because they were innovative. I mean, a backpack, 
kind of innovative. And then they came up with a lot of like strange things that didn't make sense, like the Newton pad. Yeah, this is, I'm talking, you know, sort of 90s. The Apple Newton and uh, funny sort of like digital cameras that weren't very powerful or very not very impressive. And, and basically, they were a company that was too far ahead of their time. They, they had the ideas, but didn't have all the technology to back it up, if, if you know what I mean. I mean, they, 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 they had the idea that mobile computers that you could carry from one place to another was a good thing, but then it had to be a huge backpack. Or they had the idea that photography should be digitized, but then there's the sensors are rubbish and the screens are rubbish and the data storage was rubbish, you know, so, and probably battery life as well. So then, you know, the, the product is, is rubbish. So I kind of got uh, disillusioned by Apple because they had the ideas, but, you know, all the, all the sizzle and, and none of the steak. A lot of people will probably hate me for saying this because I just kind of thought, I'm just going to go to PC, IBM PC, because at least you can mess about with the, you can twiddle the knobs and uh, flick the switches in the background. That was the attraction that you can go into whatever. You can go however many layers in behind the scenes and you can mess about with it. You can experiment with all sorts of software because a lot more software was being written for PC and a lot of proprietary software was being written for Apple and things like AutoCAD was on PC, things like SolidWorks, these are all 3D CAD programs. Of course, a lot of CAD programs were also run by Silicon Graphics back then, which was the, the amazing CAD machine, graphics machine. But that was out of my mind because it was something that only maybe the company I worked for could afford, but not me. So, you know, so I just kind of got into PCs and I fell in with that, that, that crowd. And now, now Apple is so much more expensive than anything else. They're so exclusive. And sometimes they come up with things that I just think are a joke. Like they, they, they bought over Beats headphones, Beats by Dre, you know, they bought the brand and, and you would have thought that it would be a marriage made in heaven because it was like this super amazing producer and all his know-how about music married to this super amazing technology company that knew all about electronics and software and, and everything. But then they, you know, but then they had these headphones that were basically tuned to sound impressive in a very sort of shallow sort of way, like, oh, wow, it's there's a lot of bass. This is good. Yeah, and then, and then you take one apart. <laughs> You take one apart and it's got, you know, it's got like metal plates inside to make them heavier. And, you know, like I've taken one apart basically and it's got metal plates inside to make them heavier. And, you know, heavier <laughs> is sort of like better, you know, technologically. Like this is heavy. It's got a lot of electronics in it. Did you end up destroying uh, I, it as well like, during the deconstruction? Yeah, no, yeah, <laughs> yes and no, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I don't know. I, I don't want to talk too much about this because um, it's one of those huge topics where 
everybody has an opinion about Apple and uh, Apple and Android or Apple and PC or whatever, you know, Apple music versus something else or whatever. Yeah. So no, it's not, it's not really the the kind of topic that I know very much about. I should really uh, say too much on because I don't know. I only know Mm. what I know, Mm. you know, Mm. and I've said what I know. So. Yeah. It was very interesting to hear your experience with your experience with Apple though, like with the backpack and everything. It's just so it yeah, yeah. I don't think it's it's come. Yeah, yeah. How far things have come, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I, I had an Apple laptop. My my dad bought me an Apple laptop to do my dissertation at the end of my course, and everybody borrowed it. You know, wow. Because <laughs> even in ninety, I studied in Leeds, and I graduated in ninety three. And well, yeah, 96, actually, I started in 93. So by, by 96, I like, you know, had this like super cool Apple laptop, like this thick, right? But compared to everything else, which was a desktop, this thing was amazing. And everybody in my, my house borrowed it for their dissertation. Everybody. So I want to ask you about other things you're creating recently. So you've been, you've been building automation tools with Grasshopper to do your design yeah. for you. Yeah. So is, do you think that's where design is heading? Where you design the designer in a way? Oh, wow. This is another, like, this is another topic that I shouldn't really open <laughs> my mouth too much because I can tell you now that what I know about Grasshopper and this algorithmic aided design, sort of, you know, automating design in that whole area is so big and so advanced that what I'm doing in that area is, is nearly nothing. I impress myself with what I'm doing. And maybe if I talk to a few people, I impress them. But knowing how advanced it has become, I don't even feel like I'm even scraping the surface with what I'm doing. But having said that, I am trying to use Grasshopper because it's a, a node-based scripting concept, as in you can be a programmer without knowing how to code, okay? And I've always been a visual person. I've always liked to deal with things in front of me, spatially organizing things. I like to learn through looking at things. I like to learn by physically making mistakes and then seeing what went wrong and figuring it out visually. So this grasshopper is amazing in the sense that I'm moving things around, I'm joining all the nodes with wires. And so that works for me. I feel like I'm coding when I'm doing grasshopper. I have built algorithms in grasshopper that allow me to design barbecues, which is one of the projects, one of the long-term projects that I've been doing in partnership with Original Jerk Barbecues. So I have built barbecue builders in Grasshopper, which, which is, you know, frankly, very useful because there's, there's a lot of uh, repetition. If you don't have some algorithm to help you design barbecues, for example, or Certain designs, certain products lend themselves very well to algorithmic aided design. So for example, a barbecue is 
can be a very simple product, but can it, it can also be a very complex product because it's simple because you are just setting a fire, you're putting food near that fire or that heat source, and then you're cooking the food, right? Or you're putting the lid down and you're smoking the food with all the hot smoke and you're getting the smoke particles to go into the food and flavor it. So that's kind of simple when you look at it like that. But then there's a lot of science to it, right? There's, there's, there's a volume of the, there's a sort of the size of the grill and then the amount of uh, space you have for the coal. And then you have the lid and you have the chimney and you have the air intakes and all of that has to get balanced. I don't take a very scientific approach to it. In fact, I rely on the people that, the, the guy that I work with, he's the master. He tells me what to do really. But from his input and the experience I have, I try and quantify certain things about the barbecue. Air intake, exhaust, temperature, volume, size, grill, et cetera, et cetera. Cooking height. And I put all those uh, factors into Grasshopper. I create an algorithm. And as close as possible, I'm able to spit a barbecue out the other side. And all I have to do is change some of those parameters and I can spit another barbecue out the other side. I mean, I, it sounds easy, but actually it's quite, it's still quite hard work, but it's fun because I feel like I'm creating AI barbecues. Not really, but it feels like it. So that's a sort of example of what I'm doing with design. I'm using Grasshopper to, as an algorithm to understand Ukiyo-e prints. So I will scan in a classic Ukiyo-e print and I'm using the algorithm to look at that print and take it apart in terms of line and color. And with an Ukiyo-e print, there are lines and there are colors, but the trick is to understand that that Japanese master who hand-carved all those blocks had a an order of printing so the great way for example there are there's a sky there's on top of the sky there are clouds okay the great wave of kanagawa right that famous painting of the, the wave the water is made up of a, a dark colored water and a light colored water then there are boats in the picture, and the boats are made up of the, the color of the boat itself and the color of the fish hanging off the boats. And then, like any ukiyo-e print, the final plate is always black. And it's the line detail. I mean, you know this. You, you've done that print, right? The line detail is black lines, thin lines, and the signature of the artist, right? So how can I get my algorithm to look at this picture and take apart all those, all that information and give me seven plates, right? Sky, water one, water two, boats one, boats two, clouds, and, and then line detail, seven. That's the sort of like holy grail at this point because I would love to automate this. I would love to automate it. I do it manually. I have fun doing it manually. I, I, I like doing it manually, but if I can, if I can automate, sim do this simple thing and automate this, 
then I open up uh, the possibility of creating 3D printed plates for any Ukiyo-e uh, block print out there. And I, 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 I can build up a huge library and in turn, more people can collaborate with more masters from a former space, a former time and space and, and make art, you know, bring all of that art to the, to the present day. So that's kind of a nice challenge if I can manage that. And, and, and Grasshopper is a very simple program. I'm sure if I learn how to use a more uh, complex algorithm or AI or something, I'm sure you could do it, but I like, I like doing it simple and, and DIY for now. Who knows what will happen? I think it's really cool that you can use Grasshopper for all the interests that you have. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, me too. I, I love Grasshopper. And I, I try and contribute, but you know, I, I look at these forums and there are all these people doing amazing things with Grasshopper, like building 3D printing houses and doing all this kind of like iterative design, architectural design and paneling and, you know, buildings that are twisted and, you know, like the, the Gherkin in London. I mean, it's, it was designed with something similar to Grasshopper, I'm sure. Yeah. So using Grasshopper, you're able to automate all of the probably quite tedious parts of designing something. Does it give you more clarity on the design fundamentals and what designing really is? Uh, yes, it does. I, I, would I would like to say a word about design fundamentals, but I'll, I'll, say, I'll answer the question first. I think anybody who has tried Grasshopper or, or, or like you, right? Anybody who codes, coding is essentially saying spells to make the technological magic happen, right? That's how I like to kind of like say it to people. Sounds, sounds quite exciting. It's like learning spells and in a sort of like way that you need to speak to this machine, right? When you code or when you use Grasshopper, you need to speak to the machine like it's a very intelligent three-year-old. You know, <laughs> yeah. um, you, you, if it's, it's like as long as you give it the clear instructions, it will do what you want. But as soon as you sort of sort of go, oh, yeah, yeah, well, whatever, it's fine. Just get it done. You know, that's not going to cut it. Okay, That's not going to cut it. Like anything natural human speech isn't going to cut it. So interacting with Grasshopper and, it, and, and interacting with, let's say, a colleague, you know, obviously it's different, right? It's like you can't do the same thing. Although some people mix that up sometimes. What I like about interacting with Grasshopper is I'm not a coder, but I feel like a coder because I, I can manipulate the, the code, so to speak. But I have to put my brain into a very methodical, logical frame of mind. I've got to use my, I don't know which part of my brain that does that well, maybe the neocortex or something. And I've got to be like, okay, like you're a very, very skillful three-year-old thing. I'm going to tell you what I want. You're going to do it. And if I tell you what I want clearly enough and skillfully enough, you're going to do amazing things. And I think that is so um, reassuring and so happy making for me because there is no doubt, you know, there's no sort of ambiguity in all of it. And, and it actually, I find it very relaxing. 
So I'll sit down. Like I did something in, in the other day. It was a very quick project. I made a wardrobe builder in Grasshopper because I, I said to my client that, look, wardrobes, wardrobes are, can be complex, right? Like, like, like barbecues, they, can, they seem simple, but they can also be really complex. You know, they come in all shapes and sizes and heights and orientations. No two bedrooms are the same, etc. So I'm going to build you a wardrobe builder where you give me the floor plan. I'll give you the wardrobes. And he, he went for it. So I, I used Grasshopper and I gave him a wardrobe builder. Of course, when I showed it to him, he was like, I, I, I don't understand this. I mean, it was just like a rat's nest of wires and nodes and you know but i said look no it's really simple on the left are all your inputs and on the right is just the wardrobe so you 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 you, you say how many wardrobes you want you say how tall they are how deep they are how many shelves is there a, a rack for hanging your shirts uh, is there are there sock drawers what do the doors what what do the doors look like do they have nice uh, moldings on them or are they simple doors whatever but in order to make that builder you have to put yourself you have to think like a machine and sometimes thinking like a machine can be quite relaxing <laughs> it's just uncomplicates life and um takes you out of that kind of hole you know i i, Im I imagine that's why a lot of coders can spend you know sort of 16 hours coding on stuff because they just want to stay in that zone and you know they don't want to deal with i don't know lunch or you know <laughs> something whatever yeah <laughs> Not really yeah. clear and uh, yeah. yeah once you get into the flow state right flow state yeah flow state and i think you're i'm sure if um i'm sure if people came along and attached um, electrodes to your head they would find all sorts of waves flattening out or you see like waves it's one, it's one, ones and zeros digital right <laughs> yeah yeah maybe yeah yeah instead of peaks and troughs you know you'd start tracing um you know tracing numbers or something. wardrobes come up from the signal yeah 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 exactly yeah, exactly yeah actually it just reminds me of this have you ever heard of the the, the book cosmos no 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 the book contact contact Co I know the movie by Carl Sagan. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's based on a book, and oh, and right okay. at the end of the book, right at the end of the book, is I mean Carl Sagan write, writes the book. He's the author of this fictional story, and it's an amazing story about uh, meeting you know, meeting other conscious life in the universe. But right at the end, he goes back to his sort of trademark Carl Sagan optimism about the future, and he talks about a machine that outputs the pi, the numbers of pi, right? And then he, he says, what if after the 10 millionth number, it starts to output a sequence of numbers that creates an image? And when I read that, I was imagining, you know how um, there's this kind of artistic style of coders that coders like? It's where they, they use symbols of the keyboard and they, they, they lay them out in the rows of text. But when you look at the text, it's an actual picture. Yeah, I've seen that before. You've seen that before, right? Yeah. Sometimes the picture is very cartoony and low res, but sometimes people are quite skilled and they can actually do a sort of almost photorealistic 
um, picture. I'm sure there's, there's software that does that now as well. But anyway, he, when I read that, I um, imagined that that's how it would happen. And that really it was such an, a, a nice ending to that book because it was optimistic. It was thought provoking that, that hidden in Pi was a message, you know, that some, some, some highly evolved civilization have, have embedded a message in the, in the numbers of Pi. And uh, actually, it's just, you know, just for me, it was one of those little things that just kind of kept me going with science and all that, and trying to get my kids into it and everything. Because it's just magic. It's so, it's so optimistic. And yeah, no, it's, that's just, I mean, <clears throat> there's just, just there's something about invention and progress and innovation that makes people optimistic about what the future is like. Right. I mean, did you, could you have imagined that the future would be like now, Mac, when you were carrying the Macintosh back to your room in the backpack? No, no, to be honest, no. I think I'm, I'm, I'm very much like, you know, most people. I, I'm not trying to say that I lack imagination, but to have imagination, you need some kind of seed, right? You need some reason to imagine something. There must, somebody must have planted a seed. And then you have imagination. But the things that are happening now, I don't know where the seeds were. They weren't, they weren't in my head. You know, I was just carrying a computer back to back to house and using it and just going, wow. I I wasn't thinking internet. I wasn't thinking grass, you know. I, I wasn't thinking at all, really. You know, I was like, I was 18. And I was thinking, I don't know what I was thinking. But I wish... I wish I was, I wish I was, I could say that I was super imaginative back then because I think that I would be doing a hell of a lot more now than I, than I am, but I'm playing catch up if I'm honest, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm doing art because I think it is the one area where the one area that I can really excel. I haven't been doing it very long. But I like to think, uh, you know, if, 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 if you ask me, okay, why did you get into art? I like to think that my answer is that it's one of those things that you can't read a book and make and, and have, it, have it give you an opinion of what is good art, right? I'm sorry. I know I'm, I'm, I'm kind of drifting off again, but I, I do want to sort of make this point. That, so you can read, okay, let's say you want to you wanna, you wanna figure out what's the best car insurance, right? You can go online and read everybody's comments and experiences, and then you can finish and go, okay, I know what the best car insurance is for me. You want to know what the best, I don't know, school is. You can do your research and find out what the best school is. Okay. But, but nobody can tell you what the best lunch is. You know, you can read, you can read as many books as you like. You, you are going to know what the best lunches when you put it in your mouth. N nobody's going to tell you what the best music is, right? You know what the best, what music you like. And it's the same with art, right? It's one of those things where only you know what is good art. You can read as many books as you like on it, but you are, it, it, it's, it's, it's you, whether you're four years old or you're 48 years old, you know what good art is. So when I do, when I, when I make art, 
I'm confident that I know what I'm going to like, right? So for me, I, I am my own seed of imagination, okay? So going back to your question about whether I imagined all these things, I think if I was into art when I was young, yes, I would have a lot of imagination about the future. I'd be able to project and vision envision uh, the future, but I, I wasn't. I was just doing the wrong things back then. You know, I was chasing sort of more sciencey stuff. I was into physics and biology, and I was just doing things that, thinking of things that I was told to think of by my teachers. So I had no sort of like, you know, big overarching imagination of the future. Sorry, it's not, it's not, not a great answer, but, but it's well, the truth. What about now yeah. though? Well, what is, what, now, have, what vision of the future do you have for now? Yeah. Oh, I mean, oh, as in like, now, what, what vision do you have? Okay. So now, yeah, the, 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 the you, 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 you just have to sort of pick up your phone and you're immediately inspired about the future, right? Because there are podcasts, there are YouTubes, uh, videos, there are um, people all over the place talking about the future, startups. It, you can't not have a vision of the future. There are characters like Elon Musk constantly building the future, constantly talking about it, constantly making it happen right before your very eyes. You can only be optimistic about the future. However, you know, you, 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 if, you, if, you, if you look a little bit harder and let's say you look at trends, you look at trends, you look at graphs, maybe you pay a bit of attention to the news, I try not to pay too much attention to the news, but if you pay a little bit of attention to the news, all the trends and the graphs and the, the news seems to be going not in a good direction, right? So you have this kind of like polar opposites of reality where you're being fed a, a very, very rosy, optimistic view of the future, but then you step outside and you see a lot of things going south. And you're almost kind of having to live in two minds about the future. Because for every person that tells you the future is going to be amazing, you also have another person who can paint you a very, very granular picture that there are so serious systemic problems with the future. Okay. And the problem solvers and the problems don't always seem to have been match made very well. So, you know, I'm trying to think of an example because I know what I'm saying is a little bit, I don't know, but thought provoking, hopefully. So you're, um, you're essentially thinking whether it's, I mean, it's cognitive dissonance, right? Holding two contradictory yes. beliefs at the same time. Yes. Thank you. Yes. Okay. It's like, okay. It's like maybe um, 10 or 15 years ago, China was, you know, sort of setting the stage for being a, a developed country, a first world country, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. But then somebody will come and say something very reasonable. This is when I was like, when I was learning about design and product design and mass production and things like that. And somebody would say, look, how can it be, right? If you, if you define a good life, as living in the city, owning a car, you know, having all the mod cons, then how can it be? Because if everybody in large, large countries, large populations like India and China, 
became like America and they all had the mod cons and all had the cars and everything. That is not feasible at all, right? I'm not saying anything new here. I'm just saying this is what was going around, what was being said back then. It was like, it cannot happen. That the world cannot sustain that kind of uh, level of materialism. And I, and I heard stuff like that and I thought, yeah, yeah, this is what I, this is what I, this is one example of like a trend that you you can sort of think about, but you 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 can't see happening. Like it almost cannot happen because that would that would spell the end, right? But then I was oh, everybody was wrong because of course what actually happened was they didn't have a massive TV, they didn't have a car. What they actually have, what actually is happening in China now or in India or anywhere in the world is everybody's got like a TV this big. And everybody can use a car, but they don't own it, right? Oh, or yes, the car has right. become an electric skateboard or <laughs> an electric scooter or something, and they're happy with that. So now if you define, oh, uh, if you define what does a person who lives in a first world country, what defines that person? What, how do you describe them? Oh, it's, yeah, it's a person with a mobile phone, an electric scooter, living in a tiny box. And then you realize that, well, of course, that's what it is now because it couldn't be anything else because the, the planet cannot support anything else. Right? Mm. So who, 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 who would have imagined that? You know, it's quite difficult. I also remember China doesn't give very many license plates out, right? Each year. Right, right. Okay. Yeah. Right? So that limits the amount of cars as well. Right? Yeah. And like Singapore, you know, they don't, you 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 they don't give like that many license plates out either. Yeah, I think it's the limit congestion. You have to like, you have to almost basically. buy a car in order to have a car. I mean, you have to buy the the license to have a car, which costs almost as much as the car. I see. Yeah, yeah I think that's one of the tr- one of the ways like governments have tried to redefine possibly what what it means to to live in a city and. Living a, yeah, 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 basically. yeah, yeah, yeah. Move the goalposts. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> you know, I, I want to ask you, uh, what what's the difference that you've observed from living in Malaysia, the UK, and France? The difference between Malaysia, France, and the UK is, of course, like it's a big question. It's a big. It's like so many dimensions. I lived in the UK in my childhood years. I lived in Malaysia in my young adult, you know, working first few jobs kind of years. And then now I'm in France. And so I'm looking at these three places with different eyes. But I would say that, of course, like Malaysia is my home. It's where all my relatives are, where my parents are. I have friends there. I, I, I am Malaysian in the way that I love eating and I love just socializing and just being silly and, you know, just laughing, going to the beach, things like that. Of course, it's hot and sweaty in Malaysia. It's nice and cool in France. It's sort of wet and dreary in the UK yeah, a lot. So, yeah. I mean, you're there, you know, you know. But I'm trying to figure out, like, what's a good answer to the differences? 
personally, I, I, I like France a lot because it's where my kids grew up and they are fluent in French and they are established in France. At least one of them will definitely, well, will most likely build his career in France. He wants to be a psychologist. My other son is studying accountancy, but he's a real Anglophile. So I think he's going to, he's like, for example, he's doing his um, first year work placement in Dublin. So he's already sort of set the scene for his career being in a sort of English speaking, you know, Anglophile sort of place. I like the UK a lot because it's where I had my most happiest years going to school. My fr a lot of my friends are there, my from school. In fact, I'm still in touch with them regularly on, we have Zoom, we have Zoom calls every week. We call ourselves the bunk club because we used to smoke in the bunkers in the school grounds. And that's really special for me. Really, really special. It's the healthy uh, version of going to the pub with your friends every week in the sense that I get all the social contact, but none of the hangovers and memory loss uh, associated with <laughs> that kind of, that kind of uh, socializing. We play poker, you know, together with our phones. Oh, so yeah, so for me, the UK is all that. I will go to the UK next month to do a bike trip, motorcycle trip with two of these guys. I'm looking forward to going on a motorcycle trip where I speak English to everybody and I can sort of, you know, get back into that, that kind of groove. Here in France, I enjoy my work. I enjoy running the workshops. Of course, they're all in French. I like building up my persona in French. It's still a very, I've been here for a few years, many years, but I still feel that I'm still establishing myself here. But I think given another few years, I'll be perfectly happy here. And I hope to stay on. My wife is French now. So that's progress. <laughs> yeah. So you told me that you're, you went on a trip to Poland with your friends twice, twice. this year. Is that right? Yeah. So yeah, twice. Uh, Tell us, tell us about that. Yeah. Okay. So I was just from the beginning, it was because of these Zoom calls, we're all in touch. And a couple, uh, me and another guy called uh, Nick Leon, we got together and talked about an idea of um, how we could, how we could, how we could sort of respond to the situation in in, in, in the in Ukraine. I think we were both in the same boat as you know, watching the news, feeling bad, you know, we're both sort of family guys. As dads, we were sort of like looking at this, all this the craziness happening. I mean, if, 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 if it happened here in France, my oldest son who's 19 would be involved. You know, I mean, it's, it's completely bonkers. So that sort of triggered discussion of bringing some aid supplies to, to a Ukrainian refugees. And in the first few weeks, there were millions of refugees, well, hundreds of thousands of refugees 
flocking to the Polish border. Well, all the neighboring countries, but Poland, I think, took the most. And we hatched a plan to fill up a van with, I don't know, medical supplies, clothes, toys, all sorts of things. I even put some printing kits in there. And to drive the van to Poland and for the stuff to be then transported by another party to the border. And we did that. And it was, it was a nice little adventure we had. We planned it in less than 24 hours. We drove to Bitgosh in Poland and back to France in less than three days. I can tell you, I don't even remember half the trip because we didn't sleep. I, we, we left. I met up with Nick, who lives in the UK, so he came across. We met up on a Thursday uh, night at 2 a.m., and we were back by Sunday afternoon. And it was such a crazy trip. As soon as we got back, we'd raised money for the whole, the whole effort and, and more, which we donated to a Ukrainian fund. The woman that we worked with uh, called Lana, who's Ukrainian and lives in the UK, had so much stuff collected through the goodwill of the general public that she needed three more van loads to go. So we organized another trip the following month of two vans. I roped in another two drivers from our bunker club group. And, and we went, and this time we took five days because we wanted to not crash the van and come back safely. And also to enjoy each other's company because apart from the Zoom calls, we haven't actually met in person for 30 years. Wow. <laughs> so these Poland trips were for, for some individuals, the first time that they had actually met in person in 32 years. So it was a very special, magical kind of occasion for, for us and to be doing something that we felt was good and productive and in, inspiring because after we did our first trip, some people found our Instagram page where we put all our trip photos called Bunker Club 92. They were, they were inspired as well to take their van to Poland. And they post, you know, they send us the pictures and we put, we put their pictures up on, on the Instagram as well. I don't know. I don't know really if we, in, in real terms, whether we, did, we, we had a real huge effect or not. But it certainly had an effect on us. And later on, we got photos sent to us by Lana of all our stuff in the hands of Ukrainians, uh, refugees. And that was, a, that was a very touching moment because just to see all the boxes that we had brought in their hands, helping, helping them, it kind of like, you know, completed the circle that we were trying to draw, you know, of um, reacting to a situation trying to help, helping, and then seeing people being helped. I think that's was quite important for, for my psyche, you know, in this whole mess. Quite interesting that you said that it was helpful for your psyche because it, it, probably, it probably made it, I mean, going all the way there and 
shipping stuff there made it feel like it's it's a real it's a real war it's not just something on tv right <laughs> that um uh yeah yeah i know what you're trying to say yeah no no I, th- I think yes yes i agree i agree it's a real war and it's not just on tv yes there have in in my lifetime on tv there has been desert storm one right i missed i I was born in 74, so Vietnam just ended and blah, blah. Yeah. You know, but then there was sort of Iran, Iraq, and when I was too young to understand. But when I became aware, it was Desert Storm 1, Desert Storm 2, and, you know, Iraq and, and, and Granada and all that. And all those, all those uh, conflicts on TV, the Cold War, all on TV, in movies and everything. And not to say I never felt bad. Of course, I felt bad. But for some reason... Maybe because, like, I have, I like suddenly have kids that are of that age, mm. which who would get wrapped up in this craziness. Yeah. Right. Kind of brought it very clear into focus. What, you know, in a, on a very personal, direct way, what it feel, would feel like if the country you were living in was invaded. Especially if it was your own country, like I mean, I'm in a, I'm a Malaysian in France, but I think I would still feel the same way if being a Malaysian in France, if France was invaded. I love France, and then having a a son who's like who's who's, who's 19, and and kind of imagining that this guy is gonna go off and 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 do all these things, not to say be forced to do all these things, but be put in a position where you're going to fight whether you like it or not, you know? When I think we are all have, I don't know, half the world has become so, has taken it for granted so completely that they will never have to fight. They will never have to really stand up for, against a bully that suddenly it's happening. Mm-hmm. Suddenly, it's really, it's really <laughs> happening. It's happening a few doors away, yeah. you know? And the consequences of what will happen if you don't stand up are just, you know, like, you can't even, you don't even want to think about it. Mm-hmm. No. I think it's a like um, human tendency to want to compartmentalize, right? And then when I when I visited you in Paris, you brought me to the, the Imperial War Museum. It's the Musée de la, de la Grande Armée. Uh, Musée de la, de la Grande Armée, I think. It's yeah. um, something like that. Well, it's the the military the military museum, uh, right? museum yeah. at at yeah. Anvalid. Yeah, Anvalid. The military. Then, yeah, let's let's call it the military museum <laughs> at Anvalid. Yeah. And all the all the plaques said "Mort pour la France." It's like the, oh, yeah. everyone just died for France, right? Yeah, and, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, really brought it's, the image to, to yeah, and made it really clear that a lot of people have actually died for for France, fighting for the country. Right and uh, yes, yeah, yeah, exactly. Not not just fighting. I mean, just a lot of people died just being being wrapped up in it. Mm. I mean, being you know civilians just just being here. I mean, Europe Europe in the last uh, century, uh, the, well, the last few centuries, Europe is is one of the most deadliest. Has been one of the, the, the most deadliest parts of the world to be in. You know. It's uh, it's not a it's not a safe <laughs> safe place. Yeah. 
I, statistically speaking, you know, <laughs> yeah. I, I think Malaysia has been, been been much much safer. <laughs> yeah, I mean, all we have were the yeah. Japanese, but <laughs> besides that, right? It's been yeah, 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 peaceful. yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, relatively peaceful. I think, like many other people in my generation, many other guys, thanks to movies, Hollywood movies. And you know all the sort of com- the, the the sort of U.S. the Cold War, the U.S. conflicts around the world. In in some weird way, especially we have all become interested in war intellectually, you know, and 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 sort of the history of World War Two is one of my favorite topics. Going to World War Two museums or just any any sort of military museums is something I like to do. I think uh, war is a mother of invention. So that kind of feeds into the whole technological interest in technology. Uh, World War II is the reason why there are you know, rockets going into space right now and so on and so on. So then you have Ukraine, the situation in Ukraine, which on one hand is become like very emotional for me as a father of a sort of, you know, fighting age and I wanted to do something. So hence the Poland trips. But then on the other hand, I think what's really interesting that's happening with Ukraine is that if I can kind of like go off on a tangent again, it's one of the, it's the first YouTube war, right? So Desert Storm 1 and 2 was the first embedded journalist CNN wars, right? And then, of course, I know there's been like Iraq and Afghanistan, also embedded journalists, CNN, you know, et cetera, et cetera, BBC News, you know, massive coverage. But Ukraine is like the first YouTube war. It's war on demand, up close. In fact, the very thing that is being used to fight the war, which are, you know, like, uh, what's the word? consumer-grade drones are, are, are not only fighting the war, as in it's doing reconnaissance and dropping bombs and stuff like that, but it's also filming the war, right? Which is then fed into YouTube and goes into the whole prop YouTube-based propaganda machine. It's unlike anything I think that we've seen before. It's super engaging in not in a bad way and i've actually had to tell myself stop watching war footage on youtube because these are real people being killed you know this is a clip of a real person being killed and i feel a little bit ashamed to have gotten sucked into this whole thing but there's no denying this is a very you know for for the for the younger generations this is a very very this is reality now of what a war is you know it's something that happens and you get every single detail of it and i think the danger is that it it can only desensitize people even further to conflict i'm sounding like a i'm sounding like a, a bit of a dad here but i think it's quite an important point to make yeah i think with whether it get whether it desensitizes people to conflict depends on how the how the footage is framed, right? If it's like you, if it's like 
the title is like Russians get wrecked, right? Uh, and it's like it's like a compilation with with like epic music. Then it definitely desensitizes people. But if it's if it's supposed to be like bare bones and the 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 title the 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 title is just simply that that's what's going on. It could possibly bring more awareness, you know, to how important and how how much the decisions of those with the ability to incite war have on like the world, right? So hopefully, okay. yeah. Hopefully, it a new generation of people grow up understanding that those with that ability have to be kept in check, right? That the people surrounding the ones with absolute power have to also be very critical. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I I wanna I wanna I wanna sort of I wanna address the. Um, Trying to think what I'm trying to say is that well yeah okay I hate I mean just just a, a knee jerk my knee jerk reaction is that if you say people with power need to be checked by their let's say their populace that's quite a difficult situation right yeah, yeah. <laughs> by definition if they're in power and if that power is real then they can't be checked you know it it it, it that 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 notion only kind of works when it's like a true democracy. Mm. You know, a genuine democracy where you can vote that person out in a few years if you're not happy with that person, and you know you can give them a real what for in your in your next ballot, right? Get them out. I think that happens in some countries. Yeah, of course. Right? I'm not saying that the whole world's going to pot. It does happen, but like you know, like when where it matters, is it happening, right? Is it is it happening? Is it actually like that in Russia? You know, can 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 Russians actually check their leaders and stop the war? No, oh, um, yeah. and I think I I, I mm. it's kind of a, a real shame that the reaction to the war was to sanction Russia. I know it's necessary, but it's a shame that that yeah. was what could be done because it's punishing so many people that kind of have nothing to do with the decision that was made. Yeah, most right. of them went to protest. Actually, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. A lot of them were protesting, and then they get arrested, and then their lives are ruined in the process. It's just horrible. It's just mm-hmm. the whole thing is just like what are you gonna say? It's just horrible. The the other thing point you made about what is essentially packaging, right? How do you how would how would that footage that raw footage how is it processed and packaged out to be outputted output in YouTube and how it affects people. I don't really know about that. I don't, I'm not an expert in that kind of thing. I, I just believe that if it's there and people can watch it, it's going to do something to them. I think, yeah, yeah. It's probably true that if, if you clickbait it, you clickbaitify it and say Russians get wrecked and, and put rock, you know, like, I don't know, exciting rock music or, electronic music to it and it's all very video gamey yeah it's going to get a lot more viewers of a certain demographic it's going to turn off a lot of viewers of another demographic and then if you present it in a sort of documentary format without any packaging if you like and it's just like a news report you you you're going to get another group of people uh, looking at it 
but the end result is the same. It's lots of eyeballs watching acts of war that have really never been seen this up close and personal before. And just like anything in life, if you get hit by the same thing over and over and over again, you're going to develop, a dis you're going to be desensitized and you're going to develop psychological defenses against it. You're going to become used to it. You're going to become blasé about it. I don't think, I think packaging has something to do with it, but just the fact that it's there in volume, persistent, you know, is already going to do something to sort of like everybody's psyche. And the only, the only, the only way people are going to want to stop wars is to be horrified by wars. And once they stop being horrified by wars, they're not going to want to stop wars or they're not going to want to make the effort or take the risks to stop wars. You know, especially when there is a lot of other things at stake, like your heating. <laughs> you know, when winter comes and gets cold and the heating bills are really high and it's a choice between, am I going to be hardcore against the war or am I going to be trying to watch out for my energy prices not going up? You know, these, these, these are the things that are going to make the real differences, these decisions. So, don't know. Don't know, man. Does this affect your, like, the things you want to design or the way you approach like your daily life as well? Well, I, I think a lot about art because, you know, that's, that's what I'm, I want to be the best artist that I can be. So I think a lot about art and art has always been something that can be very topical. I mean, you can take art in any direction you like, but you can take it very topical and you can respond. I think, I think one of the responsibilities of like art is to express what's going on. And so that other people can look at, look at what's going on in a different angle. Right. So I have been thinking about how I could uh, respond to all of this by making art and what kind of art I can make. I don't really have anything concrete yet, but one image in my head that has been floating around is the idea that, you know, the Romans used to have colosseums where they made people fight animals and fight each other and for entertainment. And now we have, we have the internet where we can go to and, and entertain ourselves by watching people fight each other, you know, blowing up tanks and dropping grenades on other people. And I mean, I, those are the only, those are the two, you know, sort of things that I, I, I see a lot of in YouTube. Yeah, there's a lot of other stuff going on as well. But this kind of like blowing up tanks and helicopters and dropping bombs on people seems to be like, like you know, dime a dozen right now. And, and it's entertainment. So I'm kind of floating around with this idea of visually mixing the two together. Tank, rocket, Colosseum, <laughs> maybe. It's all very uh, basic at the moment. Uh, Who knows? Okay. <laughs> Who knows where it'll go? Yeah. So, um, see, I'm trying to figure out how to like, how to bring Katan in, but I don't know how. 
<laughs> you just did. <laughs> I like Catan. You like Catan. Uh, a lot of people like Catan. I mean, like after Catan after is... talking about the war so much, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. Like, let, let's let's change the uh, change the energy. Yeah, Catan is one of the board games we played before. Yeah. Right. Why do you yeah. think it's so? Why do you think people like it so much? And is it because of the strategy or the trading between people? It's be uh, for me, in my opinion, it's because every time the dice is thrown, like every time it's somebody's turn, you're involved, right? You don't sort of like get to, you don't have to like sort of, you know, just switch off for, for a few seconds. Yeah. You know? It's like, oh, it's not my turn. I'm not going to think about it. It's every time the dice is thrown, you're involved. And when we started playing it, my kids were little and they, you know, like as a parent, you're always trying to, teach your kids interpersonal skills and communication skills. And when I, when I used to play and I used to see my son, my little son, James, and he, when it was his turn and he was trying to, trying to do that deal, you know, he was trying to get like some wheat for some yeah. wood, <laughs> but then the person didn't have wood. And then he would like ask somebody else if they wanted to get some rocks for some bricks. And he was trying to do like a three way, four way, you know, multiple <laughs> matrix deal and i was just like oh i love this game because <laughs> you know my kids are learning where we are all learning about how to negotiate and how to make things happen even if it's in an indirect way yeah no sometimes uh, you can't get what you, you can't get what you want in that turn so you have to plan for the next yeah. few turns right? plan for the next one yeah, and you're yeah. like you know like giving people the eye and you're going, oh, okay next round and then, yeah you know, my favorite, and then uh, the robber, the robber comes out. The robber comes out, and uh, everybody is absolute. It it, it it switches instantly from from this kind of collaborative, you know, community spirit. <laughs> the robber comes out, and everybody hates each other. We we created like a we we created a, another resource for goodwill, right? Where if yeah, we, yeah, yeah, if we yeah. did something, it would be to yeah. gain goodwill, collaborate that you collaborate it was something. Right. it was i'll tell you where that came from we went to an indian restaurant and outside there was a small brass table and on the table they had some calling cards for that restaurant and they were really nicely designed cards about the same size as the Catan cards and i thought i'm going to grab some of these so i grabbed about 20 of them and we and that's what we use for the goodwill so it was like i think the, the 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 way it was described was i'll buy you an indian curry if you do this this is a indian curry coupon that i'll give you if you do this good deed for me and yeah i'm, I'm surprised you remember that the goodwill card no i, I actually don't remember how you having goodwill cards but i remember you talking about goodwill oh yeah 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 no 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 i talked about goodwill because we actually had a card for goodwill ah, so you could swap um, wheat <laughs> for one of these indian restaurant cards and then you had wheat brick wood or and a curry yeah. and you could swap that curry for or next time for example mm. i mean you couldn't use it for anything else it's not like you could actually get a curry, but yeah. um, I thought it was a good a good stand-in for a placeholder for 
for goodwill, which is very important in Catan. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I find every time uh, I, I visit you and I talk to you, I learn so much about just how to do things in life, how to think, how to, oh, really? uh, uh, how, how to look at <laughs> How to look at things differently. So well, my, my advice is I would filter that by at least 50%. Because yeah. <laughs> I don't honestly think I get everything right. I think that's that's the truth. I'm I'm still iterating, I'm still screwing up, you know, I'm still experimenting. Like we all have to, right? Mm-hmm. What else is there to do? Thank you so much, Bram. Where can people find your work and how can people where can people contact you? My website is Bramtan dot com mm-hmm. i also have an instagram at bram dot tan so that's b-r-a-m dot t-a-n and uh, yeah you can contact me in either of those ways for if you have any questions or if you uh, find any of uh, the things i'm doing interesting yeah we, we talked about a lot of things today uh starting with yeah we're design. right it's like yeah. <laughs> you can uh, curiosity about Asian culture from the West, rapid prototyping, right? Yeah. Having children and adults being able to connect with artists through space and time through your work. Yeah, then... I got I got I got space time in there. <laughs> <laughs> and then we even talked about living in Malaysia and UK and France and then uh, a little bit the, the war yeah. and in the end we talked about Qatar. So thank you so much. It was a good one. It was a good one. <laughs> yes. Thanks, man. No, thank, thank, thank you for having me. I was very excited about this. And, but I think I had a really nice time. Thank you. Thank you for your time.